heart of Wellington, Kansas, Powder and String Outfitters is your down-home, one-stop shop for all things shooting sports and outdoors. Welcome to the Powder and String Podcast. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Powder and String Outfitters podcast. I'm your host, Kip Etter, and I'm here in the studio live uh, downtown Wellington, Kansas, with my good friend, uh, Greg Gilman. I say that uh, term loosely, a good friend. <laughs> uh, I greatly appreciate you coming down, Greg, and, and uh, being on the podcast here with me. We've known each other for over 25 years. And, At least. Uh, I'm going to make a truce with you right here up front. If if you keep things um, clean and and don't throw me under the bus, then I'll not throw you under the bus, and we can see where this thing goes. <laughs> well, it's been nice talking to all of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if if you can't tell from right here out of the gate, um, we're pretty dang good friends, and we've known each other for a long time, and uh, we've done a lot of, of stuff together. Um, the last. Well, the last couple, couple, several years, we haven't seen each other as much just because life and everything's happened. But um, it doesn't matter whenever we pick up the phone, it, it hits hits right off, picks up right where it was at. Yeah, some things you never forget. Yeah. So um, maybe to start off with, maybe tell our listeners out there, you know, a little bit about yourself, um, you know, your hunting experience, what you kind of done and what you do and all that kind of stuff. Well, um Originally, I was in the bar business for a long time. That's how I met Kip. Uh, did that for about 20 years and, and always was an avid hunter. You know, ever since you know, I was 10, 12 years old, my dad used to take me out all the time. Uh, as I got older, I started to get into deer hunting more and more, and it's just kind of consumed me ever since then. Um, acquired a few farms and just been putting them together for deer hunting, mainly bow hunting is what I do, so... It seems like every day is something to do to make the farm better. When did you first start? Like, what's your first experience hunting? You talk about your dad. Uh, just upland game. My dad had red setters uh, growing up. And so we always quail hunted all the time. Quail hunting used to be really good when we were mm-hmm. young. You know, it's actually kind of making a comeback now. Um, but yeah, we used every weekend we we go quail hunting and some pheasant hunting and you know, hunting fish, that was kind of what you did in your spare time. Yeah. And then you and I met in the, like, probably mid-90s. And I kind of remember, and I've, I've I've told people before, and I don't know that I've ever shared this with you, but I learned a lot of hunting with you. And and I think you were obviously several years ahead of me, but, and I had bow hunted before that and hunted, but, but that was kind of where I really, you know, I was in my younger 20s and you know, didn't have a lot of responsibility. And so we just, we, we went out and hunted everything, waterfowl, went, went to pheasant hunting up North. I've told you, yeah, yeah. I missed a Tom. I'll never forget that Tom. I missed like six feet, six feet away. I don't know. I still to this day don't know how I missed that Tom, but I mean, we just, we had a lot of experience and, and I learned a lot of my hunting, the beginnings of my hunting with and through you. Um, and I don't know if I, I don't think I've ever told you that before, but, um, it's hard for me to admit that to you, but that's, uh, sounds about right. Yeah. So when w- do you have a, a memory when your first, when was the first 
bow hunt, deer hunt that, what, what, when was that? Oh, I think I was in my kind of mid twenties. I started to get into bow hunting. Uh, Kenny Fisher had been doing it a while and he had bows and one day he said, you want to go out and deer hunt? So we went down, bought me a bow, just mm-hmm. to run the mill. You know, I had no idea what I was doing. Went out and probably the second day I shot a deer and it was over then. Yeah. You know, you're, it was just over. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that, it's that extreme. Once it, there's no going away. You know, if, if you love it, you love it. And if you don't, you just don't understand what the addiction is. But if you yeah. do, it's, it's consuming. Yeah, it is definitely all consuming. And, and I can tell you, um, you know, to, to elaborate, cause you haven't really elaborated much, but from your, your first, <laughs> from your first deer hunt to today, I mean, you just got back from a trip from, uh, New Zealand. Yeah. So you were in New Zealand. Went there and, uh, hunted tar and chamois. Um, it was just amazing. You know, I didn't know really what to expect. I knew we were going to hunt them by helicopter. Mm-hmm. So I was pretty excited about the trip. But it was just unbelievable. The scenery, it looked like a painting. You know, you're up there in these mountains and there's cliffs and glaciers. and Yeah. Just unbelievable. And you're flying this helicopter with like some fighter pilot. You're whizzing in out of these cliffs. You know, just the adrenaline it was unreal. And then these animals, you'd see them and you have to get out and jump out of the helicopter and try to get a shot at them. You know, it was just, you know, fast paced, high drama. There was a little element of danger. So when you're hunting them, when you say from a, hel- a helicopter, you're obviously, you're obviously using the, hel- the helicopter as transportation. Right. There's because- no other way to get there. There's just, it's, it's like rainforest down low, it turns into cliffs and rocks and snow and just steep, steep straight up. Yeah, you know, and these animals live in places that it's just unbelievable. They can stand on it. You know, mm-hmm. they, their hooves have like a they're kind of hollowed out underneath. It's almost like a suction cup. They yeah, can, they can hang on to that stuff. Yeah, it, it was uh, it was one of my favorite hunting trips I've ever been on. I'm gonna definitely go back again. Yeah, I know that you know from when you were over there and from when we you and I were talking, you were sending pictures and stuff, and it was. It, I mean, yeah. I know pictures, I've been to places similar like that, you know, Hawaii and stuff where you just, the pictures don't do it justice. Yeah. I took a few little videos with my iPhone. They came out pretty good, but people just can't believe like how beautiful it is. Yeah. Just hard to describe. Yeah. We're you, have, you have to go there. Yeah. You've been to Africa, Africa eight or nine times going back again this next year. It's another thing. Once that gets in your blood, you can't stop. It's yeah. just, it's, uh, <laughs> there's just so much to hunt. You can't even describe it till you get there. I, every year we go, we always take somebody who hasn't been there before. And it's the same story every time. They're not really interested in going till they go. I don't, I don't think I ever got that. I didn't get the, we're going to take you to Africa because you've never been, kid. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm still you, waiting on that phone call. You're on the list. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just down, down the list. Yeah. All right. Well. Coming soon. All right. <laughs> to, to, to be determined. Right. Depends how today goes. Yeah. So tell us about Africa. Well, it's a, have you gone to the same place every time? Different uh, places? Several different places. I've been to, you know, South Africa several times, uh, Zimbabwe. Um, and, uh, we might have been to Zambia. Just 
partially we went over the, the border and walked in there for ways. Didn't actually hunt there, but just incredible. You know, the, the wild things live there still. Yeah. The things you can't imagine that are roaming free are still roaming free over there. So with regard specifically to Africa for myself personally, I was just like you once I went and shot the, my first deer and, and I was very much like you with regards to started hunting. My first experience of hunting was, was upland game hunting, you know, and again, you, you kind of talk about, you know, back in the day in Kansas, we had some really good pheasant and quail hunting and it's, it's getting a little bit better, but it's really been hit hard the last 15 or 20 years. But then I went to deer hunting and everything and I just never, I never could quite grasp or get or understand or have a desire to go to Africa, but I don't know what it is, but in the last probably five or eight, 10 years, I've kind of had this and it gets bigger and bigger inside of me. And I'm just like, man, I want to go. I want to go. And well, I think one thing you see it on TV now, so you can kind of mentally picture what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And there's just so many different animals, beautiful animals. And just the adventure you see it. And then the trip going over there is quite an adventure because it's a long flight. But yeah, the whole thing it's, and it's reasonably priced too. Yeah. I mean, you can go, on a plains game hunt in Africa for cheaper than you can go on a decent elk hunt here. Yeah. Which, you know, you can go shoot five or six animals for the same price you shoot an elk. That's a pretty good bargain for a lot of people. So for, for guys like me who have never been, what does that look like? What does that look like as far as you, I mean, I know, and I've shared it on here before because I've talked to guys like you and I know people have gone, but when you shoot that animal and, and, and the resources that, the, the money and all of that stuff that how does that, how does that affect that local com economy and everything like that? You know, a lot of people don't understand. They think, you know, you're over there shooting these animals and they're going to be endangered and this, that the reason there's so many animals in Africa is because there's hunters and the hunters dollars bring in people for conservation. And they, they get game wardens and, uh, and patrol people. And that's what protects the animals because if there wasn't a value on them, the locals would just shoot them, you know, because they don't have a whole lot. They don't get to eat a lot of meat and stuff. And uh, if they weren't protected, there just wouldn't be any left. And the, and and the animals are protected because there's a there's a there's a value value to, to so them. That, and and so they get hired. You know, your dollars go. They hire people, and that's considered a real good job to be to work in that industry over there. Uh, you can provide for your family, and and you know, so it's it's just an all around win. If you go in those villages after, say, you harvest an animal and you go in there, especially like at one of the big five, you shoot, say, a buffalo. You go in there, you have all this meat, and they they give it out to the – I mean, it's a giant celebration for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's – the joy on their face is – you can't believe it. Yeah, and it's different than here, whereas you go on an elk hunt, you're bringing that meat back to your house. Where for you, you, yeah. Yeah, but because of it's obviously a different continent and travel yeah, and all yeah. that, you don't get the meat. Yeah, but the you eat also some while you're there. We try to eat some of everything that we harvest, but the majority of it goes, you know, South Africa. They take it in uh, some of it they sell on market, mm -hmm. and uh, but in Zimbabwe and more, the more remote places, it all goes to the villages. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I shot a big croc uh, there on this huge lake, and there's a couple little villages around the lake. Just you know. Don't look like much of anything. Right. So we shoot this crock, and about they hear the shot, so they know uh, somebody shot something. 
couple of them come out to look to see what's going on. They realize that we shot this great big croc. The whole village comes out with pots and pans. You know, they're, they all know they're going to get the meat. And uh, the croc I actually shot, they think that it may have killed two or three of the villagers over the years. No, that's crazy. I just You just got that croc. Yeah, I just got it back. It's actually still sitting on the, my living room floor because I can't get enough people to pick it up to put it on the mount. This thing is huge. A 14 foot, one inch. Just, crazy. And for some reason, I thought I had to get it full body mounted. Yeah. I'm I'm second guessing that now. <laughs> well, you told me where you were going to put it, and well, then I saw the picture of it, and I haven't been up to your house yet, but I, I want to see it. I got 10-foot ceilings sure you, in my living room, so that was the only possibility where to put it, only 8-foot in the basement. There's no chance. They say it'll fit. The tax number said it would fit with yeah. the mount, but I, I haven't uh, tested that theory yet. Let me know when you get it up, and I'll come up the next day, so that way I don't have to help put it up. <laughs> I got a lot of next-day help coming <laughs> So, so you've, you told me about this, this particular, uh, hunt, you, you, the, the crocodile, they normally let you shoot how far? What's the, what's the, tell me the story. You try to shoot them within a hundred yards, 80 yards is what they say. You don't want to be usually farther than 80 yards. Cause you got to hit them in the, about a two inch patch, their brain, mm-hmm. you know, it's not very big. If you miss it, they just go off into the water and you never see it again. Mm-hmm. Or if you wound it, they'll go in the water and stay down and there's, hundreds of other crocs in there so you're not going to go in there and look for it and there's hippos all over and all kinds of dangerous stuff so it's very important that you make a good shot it just it just stays there just paralyzes mm-hmm. it and uh, this particular one we were looking for one i want to have one that was at least 14 foot so we've been hunting for several days and we finally saw this one and where he was he was out sunning we couldn't get any closer than about 180 yards and so I set up, I felt good about shot. And he said, if, if you think you can take it, you can, because that's out there ways. Laid down, made the shot, hit him. He didn't get back in the water, thank God. And uh, we were able to recover. Yeah. So you said that the villagers felt like that possibly could be, is it because of the markings they could, they thought that that was the one that had. And he, he was the biggest one on the lake. And so he was kind of well known, you know, approximately 70 years old. So mm-hmm. I think it's been around a long time. So, you know, you see them every day. You kind of get, it doesn't take yeah. much to pick one out. And you'll see a lot of them, a lot of the bigger ones, they'll have pieces of their tail missing mm-hmm. over years from fighting and other ones biting them. And I imagine hippos snapping at them. Um, so you'll see a lot of them that would have been 14 foot or missing a foot or two of tail. That's crazy. And so most people pass on those. So those things get to live, you know, they're who knows how long they live. I heard 90 years on some of them. That's crazy. So when you were there, particular hunting the crocodile, is there other things around that specific geographic area that you're also hunting at the same time? Or yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of planes game. Uh, every place is different for what they'll have. Uh, that area in Zimbabwe. So sometimes we go there. Like we'll have somebody in camp that's hunting an elephant. Somebody might be hunting a leopard. Some uh, buffalo, leopard, buffalo combo, just depending. So all that stuff's there. That's the one amazing thing about Zimbabwe. They're, the, they all live there. They're yeah. all running wild. Rhinos, not so much anymore, but everything, <laughs> everything else you could run into. And obviously the rhinos are protected and you can't hunt them, but. Right. But the, the, all of, so that, that's another question that I, <clears throat> I get asked and I, I don't know the answer specifically is, is, is everything, 
roaming wild over there or are there game farms like high fence type stuff like we have here but certain parts of uh south africa the majority of south africa is is fenced and most of it's fenced to keep other animals from coming in not from keeping their animals from getting out Mm -hmm. because disease and stuff the cattle mix and stuff you can get diseases you can wipe out the whole herds and you know a lot of these plains game they're like cattle for these people they're a commodity you know they're selling it and especially the ones up in the popo area where it's a lot of bow hunting and stuff so they have Mm -hmm. smaller concessions and they'll kind of know what they have for a herd but you get to other you know there's a place that we hunt in south africa south africa we've been going it's all free range it's i don't think he's three hundred thousand hectares of land just huge piece Mm -hmm. so you just you never probably ever see a property line and they're low fence anyway so these animals can come and go freely Mm-hmm. And there's just an abundance of them. You just never know what you're going to see. You know, the first couple of trips you go there, you're like, what's that? How much is it? You know, it's yeah. just, just like a. Because everything you shoot, you you got to pay. A, a, yep. Most of them have a price attached to them. So you kind of know. And then usually you plan a hunt. You know, you'll pay X amount. You'll say you get, you get five or six animals in this group. Mm-hmm. You can hunt, you know, four or five of them or all five. And then you could add on just depending on who you're with. And, uh, how you're hunting them. A lot of the places now we go, we've just been rifle hunting and we haven't been bow hunting just because the way they're set up. It's just, to me, it's, I've already done most of the planes game with a bow. So now I'm kind of getting some niche animals, uh, trying to pick off the tiny 10. Each time I go, I try to get one or two of them. And you're doing those with a rifle. Yes. Some of them you got to hunt at night. Some of them are just opportunity hunts. You, Real lucky if you see one, so you got to be quick. Right. You just have seconds, so. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I think on this next trip, next year, uh, we're gonna start off in South Africa, and then we're gonna go to, up to Zimbabwe, and I'm gonna hunt buffalo again. Because you've already shot a buffalo. Yeah, I do have one buffalo that I shot, and that was just amazing. I, uh, we were hunting with my buddy and he was hunting leopard and I was hunting buffalo. So we've been out for the first two days. We were just setting baits up for his leopard, you know, and occasionally we come across a buffalo track or something. And I'd always ask the trackers or RPH. I said, you know, how old's that track? He'd say a day or a day and a half or four days, depending on what it looked like. And these guys are good enough. They can tell you. Yeah. I mean, and what's a it, pH? pH is a professional hunter. Okay. And everybody has to have one with them there. Right. And they're the ones that, kind of run the show. They have the guides. They keep everybody in line, and they set up all the logistics of the whole thing uh, while you're out there. And safety. Definitely for the safety because it, it's dangerous. It can be really dangerous. There's a lot of snakes, black mamas, cobras. <laughs> I mean, the whole, you can't that believe might, how many there are. That might have changed it for me. I'm not a snake, dude. I'll tell you one thing. Those black mamas, if you hear one or see one. Hear it? Hear it? You can hear them. Not, well, you hear the people screaming because if they see one, the whole every local person screaming and running as fast as they can. They're terrified of them. And these things are not nice. Oh my god! No, that's not. That's a hard no for me. <laughs> yeah. And so what do you do? You'll start dreaming about them. That's the bad thing. You'll sit. You'll be in your chalet at night, and all of a sudden you'll think you'll see them up in the yeah because rafters. they come inside, don't they? I mean, they can. They can. Uh, they find puff adders a lot of times in your shower. They like that moist. To heck with that. I think I'm changing my mind on this Africa deal. I don't uh, like snakes. We had a, we had an Egyptian cobra in our camp one time. It was between where we 
where we ate dinner and where they cooked dinner. And where they cooked dinner up there is the only place you get internet. So every night we go up there after dinner and walk up there and, you know, make our calls. And when you're saying camp, you're talking, I mean, the, your camping is, is their structures. Yeah. There's, but they're nice chalets. I mean, it's, it's pretty nice. You know, you come in, you're, you're taken care of. You're pampered pretty well. You know, you have chefs cooking your meals. It's rural. You'll have like the straw, straw roofs, but they have nice beds and, mm-hmm. uh, you'll have the mosquito nets around you and you have a running water in the bathroom. You know, some camps are a little more remote, but the ones we've been going to, They've been pretty nice. They're not intense. No. Like I said, one, one time we stayed in some that were tense that were nice. They mm-hmm. nice beds in them. So obviously, I mean, and if you're having a mosquito net, then it's open air, even in yeah. the chalets that yeah. you're talking about. They so, have like chicken wire on the windows. And that doesn't keep, obviously. It usually keeps the snakes out. Usually. <laughs> My buddy Gibbo, who's a PHO, they're kind of a legendary guy. He's been doing it 35 years. He got killed a few years ago by an elephant. Man. And, uh, he was on this particular hunt when I shot my my buffalo. And he was telling us one day he was taking a nap inside his uh, chalet, had the mosquito net around him, mm-hmm. and then there's a window next to him with chicken wire. Mm-hmm. And he said he kept feeling something touching his face, and he he kept wakes up. There's a cobra outside, spitting through the chicken wire, hitting his net, and a little bit of this toxins oh, are hitting damn. him because he was snoring so loud. It drew the snake's attention, and <laughs> he was sitting there trying to strike him through the window. So not in Kansas so there anymore. Is there is that. <laughs> We're not in Kansas anymore, folks. Well, this particular morning when I was buffalo hunting, uh, we came across some tracks. It was right at daylight. We checked the first uh, leopard bait, and there hadn't been anything hitting it. And I said, how old are these tracks? And he said, oh, they're two, two and a half days old. I said, you think you can find that herd of buffalo? He said, yeah. Like, I'm like calling him out. There's no way. That's Two and a half days. Think how far a mm-hmm. herd of animals can walk. So I get kind of mouthy with him, like telling me he's kind of full of crap. Mm-hmm. He's, he's over-promising in my mind. So what happens? We start going after him. Yeah. You called him out. Called him out. Six and a half hours later. We get a cop, we get on this herd. I mean, we're 14 miles from where we started. And there's just no way on earth I th- they could find these things. Cause you go across, you know, reeds and grass where you can't hardly see the, any tracks. And those locals, they'll just see a, a limb or a piece of grass bent over a certain way. And they know the herd broke off this way. And they could even tell where the Dugga boys broke off from the, the females. The Dugga boy is a. It's a, usually it's a big solitary uh, male buffalo which you're hunting. That's what you're trying to find. They call them Dugga boys, but it's the big bulls. So the Dugga boys, which you're after. Yes. Okay. So they can tell where they separate from the herd at different times, and uh, it it's just unbelievable. So all of a sudden we're going for another hour off these supposed Dugga boys that broke off from everything else. Mm-hmm. And you're, and I can I already know you. You're already, you're still like bullshit. Oh, I'm, well, now I got blisters on my feet because I was wearing tennis shoes because I didn't expect we were going to go do this. And we go through swamps, and then you go through rocks, then you go through thorn bushes, and then, you know, you're just a little everything. But every once in a while, you come across some dung. Mm-hmm. It'd be a little fresher, a little fresher. And you knew you're gaining on them. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you have no idea. They could, they could be another 20 miles away. Sure enough, about one o'clock, 
Everybody comes back. Oh, right. We're on the herd. So maybe 20, 30 minutes later, we get in a position and I find uh, the biggest one in the herd and uh, made the shot. I had to shoot him. I think we shot him five times. And what caliber rifle are you? Three, uh, 375 Win Mag. And they just will eat it like it's, I mean, they're, they're non-reactive when you hit it. You hit it, you know you made a good shot, but you don't see any reaction from the animal, which is completely different than whatever you're used yeah, to. Yeah, they just absorb, they're just just a giant muscle, you know, and this covered in scars and stuff and living out there with lions and stuff where they, you know, obviously fought them who knows how many times over their lifetime. Just their will survives just amazing. So we got that thing, and now it's reaching about 100 degrees out. And we're, I know we'd walk 14 miles. So they get back, and the, the closest truck was 10 miles away. If you took a shortcut, you know, we'd zigzag around mm-hmm. and everything. So they sent somebody back to get the truck. No, no radios, actually, no, no, they no sent, cell phones. No cell phones, nothing. So what we do, we'd, we cut as much of the meat off. Them guys, the locals there, the, 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 uh, trackers and stuff with us they wanted meat so bad they cut off about 200 pounds of that meat made a like a little lean-to hung the meat on it caped out the buffalo put the head on there and we trekked back 10 miles to this truck so they made the the a-frame to try and keep the leopards and well they they made the inside like a pole they put over their shoulder just to carry oh, they it. carried it yeah so they with, could, so with, they could carry as much meat as possible right it's because the other stuff you know, yeah, it's, when it's that, 100 degrees. we didn't have any water or anything because we didn't expect doing this. So now, you know, it's starting to get panic time. Mm-hmm. And they were they were wanted that meat so bad that they were willing to carry that. 10 and miles obviously, back. I'm assuming that that will attract other critters that want to eat you. It could, but you know, it, you know, once enough people are walking around stuff, those animals, you know, they're not. There's not a lot of risk at it. Mm-hmm. We uh, we were hippo hunting one time. And we're going up the uh, river. And the hippo is the most dangerous animal in Africa, I've heard. Or- well, the Cape Buffalo, they they consider it kills more people, it, but the hippo is not far behind it. And usually what happens is the hippo ends up killing villagers because the hippos, they come up out of the river at night mm-hmm. and feed on the grass. Mm-hmm. So they always have kind of a trail where they go up to the, to find green grass. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people are there and they go down the river to wash their clothes. Mm-hmm. So there'd be, say, a woman down there, and she walks down the trail, and they hippo and them just happen to hit the same trail, and the hippo, hippo's like a locomotive. Yeah, he just they're just gonna bowl you over. So a lot of people get killed that way. And there, I've I've also heard that they're just as fast as I mean, for as big as they are, they're just fast. Yeah, you you can't run from them. You just gotta hope you can get behind a tree or something. Well, we're we're, we're going after this hippo pod. And going up the river, and we all of a sudden the guys were kind of making some noise. They're looking over this bank. We're kind of on a little cliff. We look down. There's a 14 or 15 foot croc laying there, sunning right below us. Mm-hmm. Just huge. He doesn't see us, so we're just all looking at it and pretty impressed. And there's this one particular tracker, an older guy. Obviously, he's been doing it a long time. So I said, I'm gonna. This is the guy I'm going to be following. Something, I already know. I know you. That's how you that's, something I'd already plotted this out in my head. <clears throat> when Greg goes to a camp or goes hunting, he's already studying the people to find out where he can be the most successful. That's, that's, that's just, hey, and that's smart. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, because you're going over, I mean, that's, that's just intelligent because you're going 
on a trip, you only have a limited amount of time. And, and you're trying to be successful. Yeah. So we, we go along. So I'm kind of following, just keep my eye on this guy and the rest of the groups ahead of us a little bit. And we're walking and all of a sudden we hear a bunch of screaming and these, all these trackers come running towards us <laughs> as fast as they can run. And they have just terror in their eyes. And so instantly I'm like something bad up there. And so the particular tracker I was, uh, keep my eye on, he comes running right by me. So I start following him. Now he's running back to the edge of the river, right where we just saw a 14 foot croc. And I thought for sure he was going to jump off the bank down where this croc was. Cause that, you know, we're right there. Mm -hmm. And all I can think is what is chasing us to a 14 foot croc? That's scary. It is bad enough that we're going to jump in. Into this river with this croc. Mm-hmm. Right about the time we got to the edge, everybody kind of stopped. And what had happened is they'd bump a herd of elephant and a mom with a baby. Oh my God. And the mom come after them. It was a thick trees and you couldn't see them come after and charge everybody. So they were running from the elephants. So but everything there just, just big and scary. And then that adds to when you're going to shoot and hunt the smaller, you know, planes games. That's why they're so spooky and they're so hard to hunt because everything they're, they're is out queued up 24 seven because their whole life is just escaping. You know, when they come into a water hole, you should, they don't just come walking in. It's a slow mm-hmm. circle. It get the wind perfect. You know, they're all always have lookouts. You know, it's a, it's a process because they know that's danger. Yeah. Because obviously <clears throat> the predators know that that's a place where they can ambush them. Yeah. One of the best ambush spots. That's, so. that's crazy. So what's the, is that the scariest where you thought this is, this, this could possibly be the end. <laughs> it, it was a, uh, it took a while to calm down from that. Did one. you have to go clean your shorts out? Well, I started with brown pants. So let's just say <laughs> that's, there's a pro tip. <laughs> a pro tip. Wear your brown hunting pants. <laughs> If you're going to Africa, don't, don't bring whitey tidies. No, they're just, they're <laughs> what a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> or bring a bunch, but you know, I'm not trying to make it sound like it's so dangerous. If they're just, there's a little of that aspect to it. It's just adventure and it just animals. You're never going to see environment. You're never going to hardly ever be in. Just yeah. I mean, and for life, a guy like you, amazing. I mean, we've only talked about, you know, here we've been on what for 20 minutes talking about, you know, your, your hunting and stuff, but, We've only talked about two places you've been, man, no, you've been Alaska, you've been to. Yeah, I used to go to Alaska just about every year for about 15 years. And uh, I got a moose. I got a bunch of cousins that live up there. So we had some, I thought it was a hookup, but it's, I might've been better off going with an outfitter. Right. <laughs> it, was a, it was a little bit, it was a little bit freestyle up there. Yeah. Them. And, uh, but I guess I got a nice moose and, uh, Went with another buddy of mine. We got a moose for him. Got stranded on the Yukon River one night. Yeah, tell that story. I love that story. You were, weren't you with? Uh, you were with Kenny, weren't uh, you? So I was with Kenny, my cousin, and my cousin's eight-year-old son, who he didn't have custody of. So he wanted to see him, spend some time with him. So we invited him to go on this hunting trip. Right. You know, for Kenny and I, it was kind of a hunt of a lifetime. We really didn't want an eight-year-old kid, mm-hmm. but I understood. You know, hey, he's got. Spend time with his kid when he can. Yeah. So the, his child shows up and he's got a little teddy bear with him. 
Yeah. I knew I knew this was going to be bad. So him and Kenny just <laughs> arguing the whole time. They're just picking <laughs> on each other. So that actually makes me feel better. I'm going to pause for one second. That makes me feel better because I've told on the podcast in previous, um, it makes me feel better with regards to when I took you to South Dakota hunting and I was one that set the whole trip up everything and we, and, and we went up there and, uh, Dustin's dad had a brand new hunting dog and it was, and turned out to be a cattle dog. And I've thought, I remember at that point when we were in that street picking up his dad and this cattle dog comes out, that's the hunting dog that we'd been talking about for three days, you know, prior to, and we met it and I'm like, Oh my God, what does Greg think? I brought, we, you know, we, we drove up here to South Dakota to go pheasant hunting and the place, the guy we're hunting on the ground, we're hunting on, he's bringing out a cattle dog, <laughs> border collie, a border collie turned out to be the best dog. Chico. Yeah. Turned out to be the best dog. But anyway, so you have a teddy bear. So, you know, <laughs> we knew the trip was going to be a little bit of babysitting, a little bit of hunting. So anyway, we're, we're, uh, Years prior, I'd been to a spot, and there's a lot of moose on this little kind of peninsula on the Yukon River. So we'd rented a boat from a local, mm -hmm. got our groceries and stuff, and we would, we'd come back to town at night and stay this little village in Anvik. But during the day, you go down the river, and you look for moose. And if you spot them, you get out and try to stalk them. So anyways, we go down this, the river, and they drop me off in this peninsula. And they're going to go down the river about a mile and hunt and come back and get me at dark. So no problem. I got a little day pack with me. It's not, it's warm. I had a couple uh, candy bars or something with me. So we go off and I, I look for moose till dark and no luck. So I go down by the river's edge where they're going to pick me up and uh, they don't show up. And so I'm sitting here in the, on the Anvik River, not the Anvik River, the Yukon River. Yeah. Kind of thinking to myself, huh. It's getting wonder, what else lives out here? Right. And I had crossed several brown bear tracks, you know, during the day. So now I realize as it's getting darker that they might not be coming back. <laughs> Something must have happened. So I'm sitting there and And this is the time of year when up there it's light longer than it's dark or it's dark longer than it's light. Yeah, uh, it got dark around eleven PM. Yeah. Okay. So you know, it's just about four hours it just slowly gets darker and darker. Mm -hmm. And you'd be amazed how dark it is when there's no way around and you're stranded. feels a lot darker. So I built a fire right in the edge of the river and, and the river was down some. So there was about a 10 foot bank behind me with like tree roots and mm -hmm. stuff sticking out. So I got a bunch of wood and I got a big fire going and it's just getting colder and colder, you know, so you get to the fire to keep warm, your back's freezing. So you got to keep turning around. You're never comfortable. It's just, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, you know, I'm worried about what happened to them and I keep hearing stuff. Of course, my mind's going 100 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. My gun's right here. It doesn't leave. And uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, I start hearing some clanging from up the river. Mm -hmm. go, oh, they must be coming back. I was, thought it was weird. I go, they're coming from up the river. They should have been coming from down, the river. from down the river. And all of a sudden, I can hear some people's voices, and the boat pulls in. It's uh, the people we're staying with and another guy one of their little locals mm -hmm. and they pull in well kenny and my cousin had a radio on the boat and they radioed in and said they didn't have any oil because this you had to mix oil in the, in the, in the boat gas. motor we had we had a 55 gallon barrel of gas but no oil so they're stranded so 
the people that came down thought they just needed oil. So they came down the river and they thought they were still with me. They came down with oil, mm-hmm. but they have no gas. So by the time they get there, they're, they're out of gas, but got a bunch of oil. My cousin Kenny are stranded down the river a mile or two with a bunch of gas and no oil. Oh man. So they end up staying there. We stay there till daylight. We get up, you know, first part of daylight, we get around and we start walking around. We're going to try to make a plan. What we do. If Maybe we're thinking about get out in the middle of the river and float down mm-hmm. and run into them, but we're not sure because now they're not, there's no radio in the boat, right? So you know, you're just yeah, guessing, and, and you're it's not a li- it's not a little river. No, it's almost a mile across in some places. So you it's get out there huge. and you, you're out. Yeah, wow. So <laughs> we get out, and he and the boat starts sputtering. So we head to the other side. We get to the other side. Now we're stranded on the other side of the river. So we're there to about. Well, hold know, on. If I remember right in the story you told me, that morning when you got up, you started looking around where the, the basically outside of the shadows or the light of the fire. It, well, I did that when I came back. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm we, sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. Walked, I walked around a little bit, but we went and got stranded across the river. Okay. So now I'm going, okay, I'm going to be stranded here tonight, just across the river from where I was. <laughs> so I start building a shelter and all this stuff because it looks like it's going to rain at all times. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just going to be miserable. Well, all of a sudden we hear somebody coming down the river because they use that for transportation. There's no roads. You either fly or you go down the river. Right. And we hear somebody, we, we flag him over and he comes over and he, uh, gives us some, some, uh, fuel. So then we get in the boat, we go down, we meet Kenny and them, get them unstranded. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, it's kind of funny at that point now. Yeah. Everybody's it wasn't a lot. funny while you're doing no, it. No, you guys, and I know both you and Kenny very well. And so your personalities, you both were mattered and, get out but at that point you're, you, you've you got to the point where you're everybody's alive we're alive so it's kind of one of those deals where we're gonna let it slide for a while so we go back to where <laughs> for, i was stranded for a while and we pull in there and i got my my camcorder mm-hmm. and i start going up down the river kind of recording kind of telling what happened yeah. and almost every track where i'd walked up and down that there's a giant brown bear track in it so the brown bears have been following me mm-hmm. you know they were there the whole time. Yeah. That's the story. That, I mean, that was the part of the story that, so that, that stuck with me for a while. You'd said that there was, and I remember watching that cam that, and we're talking, this was back in the early nineties. Yeah. Actually the flight we took there, we were the first flight commercial flight after nine 11 that they opened back. Oh, up. so that was in 2000. I guess that would have been. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yeah. Cause yeah. Cause 2000. Cause that would have been right. So <clears throat> I remember you saying that, the thickets were so thick above that you didn't think that anything could come through it. And then you figured out real quick that. Yeah. And you know, the two years prior to that, we'd shot a moose back there and they were cleaning the moose. And I was taking loads back to the, about three quarters of a mile back to the boat. So you, you carry as much as you can mm-hmm. as you want to make as few trips as you can. So I got this packed on me. I'm leaned over. Of course, I don't take a gun for some reason. And I'm just not at all. Not, not even a pistol. You know, Cause I'm just walking back to, to put in the boat. Nice trail all the way back. Walk down, dump a load off. And of course, you gotta, I got to lay on my back and roll over to get the backpack off because it's mm-hmm. so heavy. Get it off, put it in the boat, walk back on this nice trail. Well, now on my second trip back, I start thinking, why is this nice trail right down the middle of this area? What would make this? And I start paying attention. What's well, a bear trail? It's a brown bear trail. Right. So I'm walking right down his trail with a 
giant hunk of meat strapped on my back. Just that could have went wrong pretty easy too. Things you learn. That's that's called experience. That's you're either gonna learn it or you're not hunting anymore because you're gonna be at the meal. Right. Well, that's one of the that's one of the reasons why. <clears throat> other than just you know that we're friends and stuff like that and, and the camaraderie, but I wanted to bring you on is is that you know we're trying to always with the podcast is to give value to our listeners out there of you know experience and stuff advice with regards to you know let's say somebody gets drawn on an elk tag in the mountains or they're going to alaska to go you know hunt the the normal hunter that, that you've you've had the ability and and privilege to hunt what's some advice you can give them my biggest advice for that is to vet your outfitters you know, do your research, go on there and read the reviews, probably make some calls to people and see how their hunt was with them. That's the number one thing you can do because there's some bad outfitters out there. and You can get yourself in a really bad spot on a few of these remote hunting trips. So you want to make sure, you know, your outfitter is well-respected. Um, he's in good shape, too. You want to, you go there sometimes, you got guys, you're like, can't believe they're an outfitter. Well, and I'm going to, I want to touch base on that because you say they're in good shape, too. I'm going to. As hard as it is for me, I'm going to put some feathers in your hat. Greg's in extremely good shape, and he, you take that you take that very serious. I know that um, if I just happen to to run into you, or you know, there's been times where we've been in, you know, when, when I lived in Arizona, you would come out, and here it is, the middle of summer, and you're still working out, and not only are you doing it just for health and just general overall fitness, but when winter comes, you're going up into the mountains and hunting. Well, yeah, you're always going to the elk hunt. So you always, you know, the better shape you're in, the funner the hunt. You get your chances are better. You just enjoy it more if you're not miserable and sore and, you know, you just can't do what you need to do if you're not in shape. So right. there's really not a choice. You know, if you're going to elk hunt on public land, especially, you got to be in shape or else you're just wasting your time. Yeah. So with regards to being in shape, is there any tricks to, I mean, here we are, flatlanders. And there's different kinds of shape too. There's elk shape and then there's sheep shape, which I don't get into very often. Right. I did that one time and it was, it was tough. It was, it, it mentally tries you. I mean, what kind it, of, it, what kind of sheep did you hunt? Uh, dull sheep. We, Kenny and I went and hunted on the Brooks Range and, uh, we got on some sheep the very first day and we sat there and looked at the sheep for about three hours and we could not decide if it was legal or not. It was just borderline. Mm-hmm. It was laying under a, a kind of a rock ledge that was cut back, and it thought it was safe. Didn't think we could see it, and we sat there and we had glasses, and we had a guide with us, and he just we looked and waited and wait till he turned every way you could, and we finally decided it probably wasn't worth taking a chance on day one because that's you're talking an eight hour, ten hour commitment to get yeah, and to they got to be legal, you know, got to be mm-hmm. a certain age, and if they're not, you can be fine, you could lose your license and. You know, it's just a bad deal all the way around. So we passed on this one, and I never got within two miles of another sheep the rest of the trip. Ten more well, that's days. why they call it hunting, not harvesting. I thought they called it hiking is what it felt like to me. Right. Because <laughs> it was 10, 12 miles a day just. And how many, at what elevation? Uh, the elevation there is not so bad. It's not like Colorado where you're up above 10,000 feet. I think five, 6,000. Well, that's not as bad. Yeah. These, the Brooks range is not as, as rough as some of those ranges are up there. So, but it was still, I mean, a lot of work. You go back down to base camp at night and you just, everything's straight up. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's no hunting down. You're hunting up and yeah. you got to come back down every day. So you got to go back and it gets real tough after four or five days. If you don't see a sheep up there, but you got to go up there to look, to look in other places. That's mental. So the mental part, it just, yeah, everybody said it was very hard to overcome. And that's the truth. You just, you start giving up and you just look for reasons to not do it instead of to do it. Yeah. Equipment. It's, it's one of those trips you don't appreciate about a month later. You swear you'll never go back again. A month later, you're booking your next trip. Yeah. It just takes about that long for your mind to recuperate. And especially if you're unsuccessful, then you just feel like there's unfinished business. But I think that window for me may have passed. That sheep, sheep hunting is a young man's game. Yeah. I've heard that. It's, they didn't make it up. It's true. Right. <laughs> um, what about, Equipment. I mean, here we are in, I mean, I know you and I've had countless conversations about, you know, having the right equipment. We were just talking with Hawk, our, our good buddy about, um, waterfowl waders and man, having the right equipment just makes everything so much more successful, but good equipment's everything. Yeah. Especially in situations where it could be life or death. You know, you go up there, you know, you get hypothermia if you don't have the right boots, right clothing, you know, the right pack where you can keep stuff dry mm -hmm. and make it get bad in a hurry. But Alaska is notorious for it. You know, it rains all the time. Mm -hmm. Weather moves in and out. It could be sunny one hour, two hours later. It could be white out snowstorm. So you got to pack different layers, you know, prepare for everything. It, uh, yeah, equipment's, it's everything. That's, you know, that's half the battle. Good pair of boots. I've always struggled with my feet not getting the right boots mm -hmm. and I finally got a pair of crispies and I've worn them on my last two or three trips. And I've been very, very pleased with them. Yeah. I just, just had a conversation with my wife, Kim about crispies. We went to, uh, to, they opened a shields in Wichita. And so we went to look at it and check I, it out. And I would highly recommend them. They're, of all the boots I've had, they're by far the best, most yeah. comfortable. They break in real easy. And, uh, I just don't get blisters. They're comfortable after walking all day. Mm -hmm. That's real rare for me. Yeah. So you've been obviously all over the world hunting. What is your number one? What do you enjoy most about being in the outdoors? Is there a number? You know, it just it depends what I'm hunting. But like say Africa, I love the people I go with. I have a group uh, that I met in elk camp. And now we're lifelong friends who I go to Africa with all the time, Keith Daly. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, you get, and a lot of times they're taking their kids now. So they get the first time they get to go, you get to see that and experience that. And the, just the camp at night, you sit around, have cocktails and food and tell the stories of the hunt all day. I mean, that's just as fun as all of it. You know, it, it's just an adventure. Mm -hmm. You know, and you, I think the last time we had 18 people went on our trip last year. And they all want to go back again. Yeah. You know, this, they all love it. And that's what we talk about. I mean, almost every single podcast, I think it's been a topic of the conversation is, is that it's, it's the experience. Yeah. It's the, it's the memories that we're creating. It's not the actual harvesting of the animal because there's almost a letdown when that happens. It's like, oh, it's over. Yeah. You know, it's like, but that's the one cool thing about Africa. There's always a ton of other things to hunt. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, you go here, you get one deer tag a year, shoot your deer, it's over. Mm -hmm. You think of all the work and all the effort you put into this, 
to get mm-hmm. this one animal over there. You okay? I got this. Okay, let's go hunt a harder beast or or whatever it might be here. Mm-hmm. So you always have options. So you get there, you have a ten day hunt or a seven day hunt, and you you kill your main animal that you're after on the first second day. There's always a lot of other things to do. You're not sitting there idle for five or six days. Right. There's just always something. Yeah. So if you had a species that you'd like to hunt the most. And that's hard to say too. I love elk hunting just because it's so challenging and I haven't been that successful at it. I've had a lot of failures, which make me want to keep going back, but that's, that's getting hard too. You know, the, you get everywhere you got to draw. It's getting harder to draw, harder to draw. Uh, there's point creep everywhere. So these real good hunts take longer and longer to get. Mm-hmm. And by the time you draw on a lot of them, you're going to be 60, 65 years old. Mm-hmm. And you may not want to go climb the mountains at that age. Mm-hmm. So you want to, but you can't. Yeah. It's just the desires there, but the, the ability's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I just enjoy it all. I mean, I like turkey hunting. I, I love waterfowl hunting. We've done a lot of waterfowl hunting. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite things, and that's because I can do it locally. I live up uh, northeast Kansas, and we got a reservoir there that's got a lot of waterfowl. We got a river there that late season gets real good, so mm-hmm. a lot of good waterfowl hunting. You know, there's early dove hunting. There's just, I mean, hunting season starts here in four weeks. I know. I mean, just that's right around the corner. And then you hunt turkeys all spring, so there's not much downtime. Yeah, and then in the downtime, I mean, you and I've been talking. Almost every week, you know, food plots you've got yeah, for deer hunt for the whitetail. I, I mean, I'm working on those all year round. You're doing something with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm starting to plant right now. I'm starting to plant some uh, turnips and radishes that time of the year. And then, you know, here in another month, we'll start putting in wheat and oats and everything else. Yeah. It's so, a, it's a full time. It is. It's a, it's a, it's a. It's a, it's not just it's a, a passion. Yeah. It's a passion. It's, it, why else would you go out in the middle of summer, 110 degrees and fill feeders or cut out tree stands and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody else thinks you're crazy. That's the most fun thing you did the whole week. Yeah. You know, yeah. Get, get on your tractor and plow field. Yeah. Never thought I'd like that, but I look forward to it about as much as anything. Yeah. It gives you a chance to decompress and it's just, you do something, you accomplish something. You can just see what you did. You know, it's instant gratification. That was just, you know, a field earlier. Now it's a food plot that a 200-inch deer might walk into. Yeah. And you've had a lot of success whitetail hunting, too. Wait a minute. I got a pretty good piece of land, and uh, I put a lot of work into it and I, for bow hunting. And so pretty selective, um, you know, with, with a lot of work and time on the farm, we've really increased the numbers on it. So there's good quality, good age structure. You know, we let a lot of the younger ones grow up to their full potential, and it makes for a, you know, each year you have a chance to shoot a, a real quality animal. And we hear that again over and over in the podcast. We've had, you know, several guests on here that talk about, you know, how do you get to where you can have a chance to shoot a, you know, 180 or a 200-inch deer. And, and while passing on those younger deer doesn't necessarily guarantee because those deer, they're wild. They can go anywhere. And, and they don't all grow to be big ones. You know, everybody says, oh, you got to let them all grow. You have a lot of them that they're as big as they're going to get at three and a half years old. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they just don't make a leap after that. You know, but if you're going to try to shoot a, you know, a booner or a, 
180, 190, 200, you got to take, you got to let them age out. That's your best chance of killing a giant. Yeah. There is definitely luck involved, but there's also, you can, you can, you can increase that chance. You, you can increase your luck a lot by mm -hmm. giving it, giving it every preparation. Yeah. And, and with regards to that, I mean, I see it from, from people like yourself that should have shot. I've never shot a 200. Um, but guys that have success like that, they all are saying the same thing that you're saying right here. Um, and we've had them, you know, we had it talked about on here before is, is that you, you have to get your, yourself prepared for it. And it's not just something you're just going to walk out there and all of a sudden that, that deer is just going to appear in yeah, front of you. It, it's a multi-year process usually because mm -hmm. most of the times you'll be hunting somewhere. So you have at least, or you own a place and you'll see a deer when he's younger and you go, oh, that deer's got a lot of potential. So, you know, you just do everything and everything you can to keep him alive and, and, you know, have cameras going all the time. So you're keeping kind of a catalog of him. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's another thing that, you know, he, again, going back to my own personal experience in the last probably three to four years, is year-round cameras. I used to just, you know, starting about right now, I'd, you know, go out and put food, you know, put down some some food plots or go out and put out a feeder or put out a mineral lick and put a camera over it and then start trying to take assessment of what I've got out there. And the last four or five years, I've just gone ahead and kept my cameras going year-round. And it's made it a lot easier, obviously, with the advent of, you know, like Tacticam with their cell phone yeah. and, and all that. That makes it so much easier. Um, but keeping uh, in an inventory of what deer you have out there. And obviously I think I, I, we've talked about it again on here. We think it's fun to name, you know, we name them and you always come up with unique name. Everybody comes up with unique yeah, names. It's, that. it's, that's, that's it's so fun. fun. And yeah, that's, it's so much fun. And then, but it also gives you the ability to share the picture with your buddy and then your, and then your buddy can talk to you. And again, that's half the fun. A yeah. lot of people don't like, a lot of people keep everything close to the vest where they don't show pictures and stuff. No, I, that's not me. I want my buddy to have just as much fun as I do. And I'm happy for other people when they shoot a big deer. Mm -hmm. I, I know that's real hard for a lot of people because everybody yeah. wants it's so competitive and it's ruined a lot of friendships. These deer, I mean, people take it serious. Yeah. I've, people, you shot my deer and, yeah, I'm just, and the neighbor, you know, the neighbor, well, it's, it's a wild animal and you know, it just is what it is. Like, you know, just just because you put out a food plot or, you know, they some people think that they put in more effort than you did or whatever. It doesn't they, matter. They think it's their deer. It's yeah. Not. No, it's, but it's, uh, that to me, I'm, I'm with you. Like I, I've had opportunities to go hunt places before and they're like, well, you can shoot anything, but you can't shoot this one. You can't shoot that one. And I'm like, oh, I don't even want to go then because I don't know. It just doesn't, you know, I don't usually put restrictions on what, just the age. Mm -hmm. It's like this. Let's let this one age. So pass him, mm -hmm. and that's yeah, fine. With I just have a few people that hunt with me, um, and then we're all kind of like minded on that. You know, they want older deer, mature deer to see what. Yeah, and that's what I meant by that was you can, you can't shoot these huge ones. Like we have right. two, you know, two deer that are just absolute monsters, and those are only mine. Yeah. It's I'm not. I don't like that. It's you know, it's like, man, that's what I mean. It's not that that. Uh, you don't want to go out there. You're going out there to have the experience and then to have that experience sit there right there in front of you and you can't do anything about it. That would, I don't know. I'm just not that type of person. I, I, sometimes it's easier to beg for forgiveness than ask permission. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I think it's awesome that you're talking about that because I know, I mean, it was been several years ago that you were actually 
featured on a show talking about development of property and food plots and yeah and this that was back at i mean that was back before it was even really kind of a thing it was just getting started they were just just kind of talking about it yeah now it's it's everything now it's all you I mean, it's, what a huge industry yeah you know all the stuff that goes into it, the seed and the, all the equipment and all that stuff yeah it uh it's in the whitetail world it's just everything you know if you got a piece of land everybody's trying to improve it yeah and it i mean and it's again it's not easy i mean that's takes time you got to have the time yeah if you don't have the time then you got to kind of make decisions what you're going to do and what's most effective for the time you have and we're lucky in kansas that you can feed so that's a shortcut for a lot of people you know you can put corn out and you know, it's going to increase your your odds a lot but uh when you say it increases odds, do you feel like it increases odds with regards to, does it help the overall herd population, the health of it? Or? You know, there's a lot of debate about that. A lot of people think the corn's bad for them in too high a level. They're not, mm -hmm. you know, their stomachs and their digestive system's not set up for that, especially certain times of year. I don't know all the uh, science behind it. Um, and, and I don't usually run my feeders during the summer. Cause there's a lot of other food for them to eat, you know, they have, but when it starts to brown and up and stuff. And on your particular farm, they have other food plots. They have other food sources. Exactly. I always try to have something year round. There's either clover, alfalfa, I've got tons of, of oak trees too. So there's, I'm mean, just a lot for meat. There's plenty of water. Do you They're feel not very stressed? Do you feel that having some type of supplement or food or or food source they're available when they're when their antlers are growing makes a huge difference i think so um to what extent i'm not really sure because in, our, in different areas i think it makes a heck of a difference i think where we're at there's enough natural everything they need yeah and i'd have to agree with you on that because i remember coming from i remember vividly when i left here sumner county southern kansas and i went to kansas state and started hunting that I remember thinking, well, I tried to find a spot to hunt up there, um, kind of in the area where your farm's at now. And again, we're talking back in the nineties mm -hmm. and I thought, well, this will just be a place during the week, but I'm really going to go back, back home to hunt deer because they're, you know, I just have so much more ground to hunt and the beer, deer are bigger. And I couldn't have been more wrong because up in that area, they're just the main thing up there is they're just thick. The, the, the base, I mean, they're, they're, the antler growth is just yeah, a lot of mass on mass. It's just, crazy how much yeah, mass they have a lot of ag so they get they, they have what they need mm -hmm. you know they're, they're not stressed there's always a food source and i think that's the big difference on that and then also just the environment it's not flat you know people think of kansas being flat no up northeast kansas very hilly a lot of crevices and canyons and stuff and i think those deer you know a lot of them don't get seen very much you know, especially those smart old bucks you know they that's stay down true. So they get to age out just by the, the topography. It yeah. gives them a, you know, just a natural escape. From, it, I mean, it, it's definitely two different worlds. Kansas is such a, it's a unique state. I mean, it's, there's so much different diversity with regards to the um, climate and the, and the topography you, and everything. You definitely get all four seasons here. Yes. And a lot of places don't have that. No. And you, like I said, you're, the area you're talking about, the Flint Hills, there's, I mean, it's, there's areas where you can go there. I mean, I know I've heard you talk about it. You'll go out there and hike those hills training to go in shape, get in shape to go yeah. elk hunting. Yeah. But around here, it's as flat as this table. 
Yeah. Right here where we're sitting at. And then with regards to the weather, I've heard um, somebody smarter than me said that from the western border of Colorado and Kansas to the eastern border of Kansas and Missouri, there's more weather change than there is from the eastern border to the east coast. And I, I would, I believe that. I believe that because you get out west and it is dry and it is, it's just different. It's completely different than the east. Yeah. I have some turkey hunters come up from Georgia every year and they just can't believe. You know, in Louisiana, they come up, they just can't believe. They go, I thought Kansas was flat. And I'll have them humping through the hills. <laughs> yeah. Just dying. Yeah. Uh, you get the eastern, especially north, the eastern third. In the northeast part, it's yeah. There's a lot of hills and and elevation change, and then but then you get basically from about the western two thirds of it, it's flat, and then as you go slide on yeah west, it just starts to flatten out, flatten out until you get to the basically out in eastern Colorado until you get to the Rockies. Yeah, so it's it's a completely different. It doesn't you know it, it changes, and we've got you know all kinds of wildlife habitat and, and, and hunting opportunities in Kansas. Maybe we shouldn't yeah, be so talking really about it so good much. good all over the state, too. They shoot real big deer all over the state. Yeah. And the southeast, has a, they shoot a lot of big ones there. Yeah. The southwest is kind of sleeper. And I'll tell you what, even just west, sleep, another sleeper is mule deer. Yeah. There's not a lot of them, but there's some big mule deer. Yeah, yeah. they used to have some kids that worked for me that, their families had big farms out there, and I never mm-hmm. really pinned it down to when I could have to get permission on those things. Yeah. There's some big mule deer. Yeah. I've got some buddies that live out there, and they'll send me pictures. And I mean, these are mule deer that even a seasoned mule deer hunter would, would have no problem harvesting that deer. It's a nice, they're a nice, they're a trophy deer for sure. With regards to turkeys, and I know you, you're a big turkey hunter, and you've got a lot of success in it. Um, what do you think has affected the turkey population? I mean, we've had it big time here. I know you've kind of talked about it with me. You haven't had as much up there. You, yeah, what's your thought? You know, I'm not 100% sure. You know, you, I noticed the regulations are down to one bird. used to be two in our area. And then next year, they're even cutting it down more. They're going to have no fall season anymore. I guess statewide, they ban that. I don't notice as much because where I'm at, I have a ton of turkeys. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't go to my farm without seeing 15, 20 within 15, 20 minutes of being there. I just, they're, just, they're always there. Partly because I have feed available for them mm-hmm. and low hunting pressure, but I haven't seen the die off. I don't know. So let me ask you this. I, I'm sure it's just a combination between predators and poor hatching, you know, wet springs. I'm not sure exactly what causes the uh, poor nesting. If it's more environmental or the it numbers of predators, so, or a combination of that, because I know you, and I haven't asked you this question exactly, um, but I know that you're always out on your farm. You don't have a, as many coons and possums and stuff because that's something that you take care of. Yep. So maybe, I mean, that to me that and it helps. I'm sure that helps. Um, I but, believe but there's still plenty of them there. Right. Like the other day, I did saw a bunch of little pup coyotes. I'm just thinking all the damage they can do over their lifetime. Yeah. You know, how many fawns and eggs and pulps are they going to eat in their yeah. lifetime? 
So this week I'm going to try to uh, get out there and call a few of them and thin them out a little bit. Yeah. You, um, you've got a, a, a thermal scope from us. Yeah. What'd you think of that? I've, I've, I haven't asked you. I know you had frustration cause you don't <laughs> like, you don't like technology. It's a little technical for me, but yeah, I like it. I, have, got it I haven't got to use as much as I want to this year. I'm going to use a lot more. I did, uh, I had a farmer gave me a cow carcass last winter and I set it out on my farm and I go out there in the evening. I had some big hay bales I'd set up as like a, a little, like a little blockage where I could set mm-hmm. back, get out of the wind and I'd hunt them right in the evening. I shot seven or eight coyotes off of them. And then once it got dark, I would use the thermal. Yeah. And it's pretty fun. I just got, it was having some technical issues that you fixed for me. So this year, Hopefully, I'll get to use a lot more. What hunts do you have lined up for this year? I, uh, I'm still there's a some leftover tags for this elk that a guy told me out there. They we put in for we didn't get the original ones, but some leftovers came back. So still have a chance to get one of those in Colorado, and mainly just whitetail this year. I didn't get, I didn't, uh, I got the general Montana elk tag this year, and I turned it back in. I was hoping to get the eastern portion mm-hmm. this the general is just tough hunting you know especially the the public hunting is just a lot of work and low success with a bow so we'll see mainly just a white tail this year i think do you feel do you see with yourself you know um specifically do you see because i know how much you're a archery hunter do you see yourself with those western hunts more uh, as you get older, going to rifle, you know, I, I don't know. Or is it one of them things where you've already harvested them? I, yeah, I've already harvested several elk and because it's not everything. So it's I'm not going to die if I don't get another one. I just enjoy the the cat and mouse of the bow hunting. Yeah, you know, it's just if you get one, it's such a reward. You know, it's, a lot of things have to come together to be successful in elk hunt. No matter how many elk there are, you know, they're not easy to get close to. And we're using a bow, very limited in range. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not anti-rifle hunting by any means. I do it sometimes, but I definitely prefer bow hunting. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm I'm absolutely not against it. But I think it's one of the things where, I mean, and I see it even around here with, you know, some of the ground that we hunt and we have access to that we're lucky enough to hunt that these guys are are rifle hunters and when you go in and you say hey oh, i'm just going to be bowing i don't even I'm, i don't i'm not gonna rifle hunt at all and then you kind of tell them where you're putting your stands and where you're putting your stuff and doing your things they're like well that doesn't make any sense to them because they've never bow hunted and once you've done the bow hunting it just it's a little bit more personal up close and it's fun and it's, I, a, it's a different experience for sure yeah just it's all elements you know scent control wind direction you know, I, I sell these guys with these long-distance rifles and stuff, shooting a 1,000 yards and stuff. They're talking mm-hmm. about shooting dangerous game. Is it really dangerous at a 1,000 yards, you know, yeah. shooting a bear? It's, you know, right. you kind of eliminated that. I mean, it was a skill to it and all that, but I just like the up personal. Yeah. You just, I think, I, again, I'm with you on that. I, I, have a, I have mad respect because I think it does get to, when you get out to that, you know, 800-yard, 1,000-yard-plus and over, it adds a whole other element of, of oh, experience to a, it. It's a whole different skill too. But mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not the same as archery. I don't. I definitely don't think that. Yeah, it's a 
different little niche. And the more people we bring into hunting, the better. Absolutely. So however they do it, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. That's, hey. And that's the cool part about it. power is, to you. Yeah. Is, is that if we don't embrace all the different areas of it and realize that we're all in this together, this thing, I mean, even even in the last 20 years, 25 years that we've been doing it, it's changed no, dramatically. Immensely. Just you remember, I used to be able to go knock on someone's door and, yeah. and say, hey, uh, can I hunt? Sure, come on out. Yeah, well, you and I, we. Never would, happens anymore. No. Well, you and I, when we first started, we'd go get those plat maps, yeah. you know, the little. Yeah, get the book. And, get the book, and that was, and then you have, in your truck, you'd have the plat map book, and you'd have a, 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 a phone book. I couldn't even think of the word of it. God, remember those things? <laughs> yeah, a phone book. And then we would look up. You know, you'd have to find the map and then find out what page it was and then go to there and then you'd find out the crossroads and then you'd have to go just like on Onyx now where it just, yeah, you know, and then we'd have to find out who owned it and then we'd look up the phone book and see if you could find out the person's, you know, name and number and possibly where they lived at and then go talk to them. And, and usually you were successful and yeah, sure, go out there. I got real mixed emotions about the whole out-of-state hunters leasing up all the land. Mm-hmm. Is it? When the when the average Joe can't hunt anymore because it's too expensive, honey's not gonna last. You know what I mean? You gotta it's gotta be that's one nice thing about Kansas. We got a lot of public land and we gotta make sure we keep it because when the average guy can't go out and hunt unless he's rich, it's it's a lost sport. I would agree. And I've I've seen a huge I mean in from when I first started hunting to today, I used to be able to I could go anywhere in this county and there was probably 10 places, to, you know, 10, 10 people that didn't, then they wouldn't let anybody on. If they let, it wasn't that they just didn't let me on. They just wouldn't let anybody on for whatever reason. And now I'm down to, I'm, I, the places I hunt, I'm so grateful that I have them. Um, but if I was to have these places to hunt back then, I probably wouldn't even have hunted them because <laughs> yeah. they're not the best places. They're not the top end. Top yeah. end they're, it's a commodity now. Mm-hmm. These farmers, you know, they can get as much money for a couple deer hunts, you know, as they can for some of their crops. I mean, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. They, you know, it's a, it's huge business for them. Yeah. If you would have been hindsight 2020, if you could have gone to these farmers 20 years ago and said, I'll give you $500 an acre for all your bottom ground, they'd have been lined up. Yeah. And now the that ground is worth Wait. a lot of times more than the crop. It's just amazing. Like I, I remember not not very long ago when banks wouldn't loan money on the rough ground that we hunt on. Mm-hmm. It was useless. Now it's bringing four and five thousand an acre. Just unbelievable. It, it is unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you know if it's one of them things that it's it's just like anything. Once it it's become a business and money's involved, and, and I think COVID exasperated the whole thing too. You know, people were pinned up. Once they got where they get out, they just realize I'm moving out of town, getting a little land, going to enjoy it. And just that's really opened up and it's really driven the price up on a lot of stuff. Just people want to get out of the city. Yeah. And I can't blame them. No. I mean, I lived in Phoenix for a while and there's a reason why I live in Kansas. I mean, I was born and raised here. It's a dry heat. Yeah. So is your oven. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, it's not, I'm not here because of the, you know, we talked about the the geography. It's it's definitely not the prettiest place. I mean, up where you live is real pretty. I like that area a ton. It's it's super pretty. But it's still green this year too. Yeah. Usually by this time of year, it's all burnt up. But we've been lucky. Had fortunate rains. 
And you guys haven't had as much heat as what we have. Last two, yeah. But the last two weeks we got it finally. Yeah. We, we were pretty mild till then, but we're getting a good taste of it now. You were down here a couple of weeks ago and it was 102 and you said it was 80 something up yeah, there. Yeah, it was 24 degrees cooler, I think. And that's only just driving home. Yeah. Two hour drive. Two hour drive. Unbelievable. Crazy. And that's Kansas for you. And if you don't like the weather, just wait. I mean, that, that's a fact. Yeah. And it's been kind of the last, the last two weeks I've been down here have just been hot. I mean, we're at 100 degree every day, which we get 100 degree weather, but not like this. And it's like the next four or five days is supposed to be over 100 and it's not supposed to cool down. But that's, that's, uh, that's Kansas for you. But I can't say I blame those people for wanting to get out of the cities and all that restrictions. The recreational property is, it's hot right now. Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to tell you, I appreciate you for being on here and uh, coming on and telling stories about hunting all over the world and sharing it with everybody. It's been fun. Anytime. I, I think we kept it G-rated. Next time it'll be. Right. The other side of the story. <laughs> Paul Harvey. <laughs> Paul Harvey. Now you know the rest of the story. So, well, hey, I appreciate you being on here. For all of our listeners out there, um, if you could, please go on, if you haven't already done so, and like and subscribe to all of our social media pages. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Twitter, now X. Um, I don't really know how to, what Elon's got going on with that, but, and um, on our videos here on YouTube, if you could um, please subscribe and, and uh, like the videos, comment on them. That really does help us out a ton with um, getting all of this out there because uh, being that we are hunting in 2A, everything is 100% organic. So there's no, uh, it has to be shared by our listeners out there. So for everybody out there that's tuning in, we greatly appreciate it. And once again, thank you so much for uh, joining in with us here at the Powder and String Podcast. Powder and Strings, Outfitters, your hometown shop. Mm-hmm.